Hi, this is Keith, and welcome to Klezmer Podcast 125 for August 24th, 2015. The website is klezmerpodcast.com, and you can write to me at keith at klezmerpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to Klezmer Podcast on iTunes, Mixcloud, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to follow Klezmer Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, Last.fm, Pinterest, and look for the monthly Klezmer Podcast playlist on Spotify. For this episode of the podcast, I traveled back to London in the UK to speak with Sam Eastman of the band The Spike Orchestra and to talk about their latest release entitled Ghetto. Sam is a gifted arranger, composer, and best of all, trumpet player, my kind of people. So here we go with our interview with Sam Eastman of the Spike Orchestra. This was recorded on August 22, 2015. Hi, this is Keith, and welcome to Klezmer Podcast. Today we're in London, UK, visiting with Sam Eastman of the Spike Orchestra. They have a new album called Ghetto, and one in the works that's going to be released shortly. Uh, Sam, welcome to Klezmer Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, and thank you so much for sending me the CD. Um, I'm completely blown away by this Ghetto, ghetto CD. I have no idea where to start. I have so many questions. And uh, I guess we get on with the basics. Tell me about your musical background and, and what Spike Orchestra is all about. Sure. So um, I, I'm a, a trumpet player and a composer. Um, and the Spike Orchestra is kind of the, the brainchild or the... The result of me and Nicky Franklin, who's uh, my co-composer and who I run the band with. And it's pretty much just a vehicle for our compositions, whatever we want to do. And primarily it started out as an opportunity for us to write all the stuff we weren't able to write that was commercially viable that we really wanted to do. So it started out as um, kind of like a pickup band in old boxing rings and sort of back rooms of pubs and we'd try and assemble enough people to make it work and play whatever we wrote that week and and through time we had you know, hundreds of people come through the band and some <laughs> people stayed for one night and some people didn't quite manage that some, you know, and some people stayed for longer and it, it is very much sort of me, Nicky and a suitcase full of charts and we sort of tailor who we write for and what lineup we have you know, to suit each project that we do and it's primarily based around a big band lineup so we have a trumpet section a saxophone section or a reed section and a trombone section and a rhythm section um, one of the things we did fairly early on was put an accordion in the rhythm section as well as a piano and a guitar so it, so we suddenly get all these different compositional possibilities and when you've got no money it's a bit like having all the money because <laughs> <When you laughs> everybody's interested yeah but also because you can do anything you know why not you know if, you, if you're worrying about budget why you wouldn't do a big band so when we, we were sitting down we were like oh, we really want an accordion yeah why not let's have one let's find someone that plays the accordion let's write for accordion let's put that in the band and 
This is massively, hu- uh, massively expensive to run a, a big band. Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> the, this recording that we're talking about now, Ghetto, that was done on the most impossible budget you've ever seen. I mean, that was because we had it was completely independent. We had no financial backing from anywhere, so it was whatever me and Nikki could scrape together just off the backs of our day jobs to put it together. So we, fortunately, we have a, an amazing trombone player and producer within the band as well. So me and him tend to run the recordings and give him a name check there. That's Ben Greenslade Stanton. Um, and me and him do a lot of stuff together as well. He's does a lot of other funk stuff um, and other really interesting musical things. So once you've got two composers and a producer and you've got... <laughs> access to studio space the possibilities start to become limitless and one of the things that certainly ghetto and before ghetto what we were working on was that me and Nikki are much more interested in a, a narrative sense to what we do so we tend to think in terms of suites or stories and and write sort of through composed or longer collections of pieces of music rather than just one-offs that's what I noticed about this album. It seems to be kind of somewhat gapless uh, between the tracks. Yeah, I mean, so so Ghetto came about principally because we'd written the previous year. We'd written a, a massive overblown suite um, based on the. I don't know if you have it in America, Punch and Judy. It's a uh, yes, very yeah, British yeah. thing, but so we we were looking into that and we. We found one of the, the earliest surviving script, which is still 200 years after the first documented Mr. Punch show. And it's a Victorian uh, morality play and murder... Uh, I won't say murder mystery, but kind of a, a violent, really horrible, nasty, anti-establishment, anti-authority morality tale, um, which is quite a jarring clash with the every the nowadays punch and judy children's entertainment but you're socially contextually you're talking at a time when families would go to the hanging in Tyburn square as entertainment so you know the script reflects that and we found that we thought you know it makes a great story we thought it broke down nicely into a narrative sense and we wrote this thing with no real well no real awareness of what it would take to record or perform so we had five trumpets and four trombones and a tuba and you know very specifically Nick is adamant that it has to be performed with a grand piano I'm I'm more flexible on on those (laughs) but she's a piano player so she's this is how we have to do it and we sat down and worked out the budget and worked out what it would take to record and there was no way we could record it you know we were talking thousands yeah well many thousands to do it the way we wanted and as well because when when there's 20 people in the band the space you need to record in changes and suddenly the the price for the recording studios you have to use because even with an engineer and a producer who are happy to work in the same as part of the band you're still looking at a space which costs so so mr punch kind of didn't work as a recording project that year um, we had this access to this space and we had Ben on board and we were trying to think of something we could do that we would write specifically in order to record So, and again it's always narrative and um, one of the things that I put forward that Nicky instantly went for was the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising which is 
a huge part which, of my which hasn't been written about very much. Well, yeah, and we found that when we were researching it that there isn't that much, or even topically written much. Yeah, it's yeah. it's an it's anachronistic in so many ways, and it doesn't kind of fit into a lot of people's narrative of what the show was or how things happened. And it was relevant to me in terms of my family, um, as my grandfather had, my grandfather my grandfather was a man who never let complete accuracy get in the way of a good narrative. He was a wonderful storyteller. Um, but there are stories that I tell my, I'll, I'll tell my mum now that I heard from her dad, and she'll be like, "Oh, it was only so much when I was a kid," or <laughs> you know, it didn't quite have, you know, the ending was a little more low key. So I, I, I don't know from that. I found no documentary evidence of it, but documentary evidence is, is can be difficult to find. I, I traced a lot of family who were murdered during that time, but I remember as a child being taken to. Uh, I think the Imperial War Museum Holocaust exhibition. Me and my grandfather were standing in front of this photograph and he, he starts talking about how he can't look at any photograph from that time and not look at a face and wonder if they were part of his family. And something increasingly as I get older I find myself doing. And so the story, the story hooked us in because it's a great story, because it's, it's, it's one of those wonderful Jewish stories of... That, that sort of feels like a triumph right up to the point where you look at the reality of what happened. That in a, in a similar way to Masada, that it's it is this story of the, the uprising. If you were writing a film, it would be a success, right. and everyone would break out of the ghetto and you know make it to Casablanca and get out from there or something. <laughs> but but you know obviously it didn't happen like that. And and so there was something about the story. There was something about the the fighting back in the face of impossible odds obviously to romanticise it to Hollywood it and and also the human condition because I think with all stories you're looking for a grand historical statement or a times of upheaval or massive import and being able to focus on incredibly personal things And so when we were splitting up the album and what we wanted to do, we, we felt we could do the big sweeping gestures with the big band. We felt we could deal with uh, everything that was huge with that. And then we sort of thought, well, for the human side, we can, we can use these duo pieces where we just improvise. And, and then suddenly it feels more personal. Suddenly it feels like voices rather than a narrative or a film or a, a big set piece. It feels like a conversation between two people in a situation. And we also wanted to write for violin and to have a different colour and to get that old world klezmer sound into it. So we went for a six piece lineup as well. So the album consists of these four big band pieces that are the framework of it and then three smaller six piece pieces which are fit in and add to the story and then these very small little almost linking sections or interludes of just purely improvised 
almost dialogue in between so like a like a, a cue card or a, on the old silent movies where they'd have the, the little bit of text coming up we sort of vi- envisioned it being something like that so we had a framework of something we could record and we felt four pieces with the big band in the time we had with the, the money we didn't have <laughs> was a possibility whereas ten pieces with the big band just practically as well was almost uh, how many pieces in the, in the big band pieces? Uh, there's four of them I mean, how many uh, band members in that? Oh. So on this album, there's 20. There's we we went five brass, four trump, four trombones. F- so sorry, pardon me. Five trumpets, four trombones, a tuba, five reeds, piano, bass, drums, accordion, and guitar. Because if you don't have any money, you might as well try and get everything. And that was <laughs> very much the case. That you know, if we tried to do it on the budget we had, it would have been a duo and, album. And. I, uh, Wow, I have so many questions, but um, on the big band pieces, I noticed you're not performing on those. You must be conducting because those are very uh, dense, intricate pieces. Yeah, I mean, quite early on, me and Nicky felt sort of conceptually moving out from being in the band helped us to write and helped us to view the band as a whole and not to think about the section. And I mean, I love playing and I love playing in big bands, um, but as a trumpet player, I find when I'm sitting in a section, I, I think about the section and I've got to do all those things to play in a section whereas when, I, when I'm when riding I want to stand in front or sit out front or sit somewhere at the back of the hall and listen and so we tend to we tend to direct so we run rehearsals and we do all this stuff and then we get to any time we're performing and the band hopefully is so well rehearsed that suddenly there's just two conductors and neither of us are doing that much because we're not conductors, we're composers and they just sort of stand out front and take the applause, which is quite nice. Um, now, listening with, with, with a bit of an American ear, I, I have to ask you if you're, a like me, a huge fan of Stan Kenton. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I detect a, a lot of some of his style in, in, in a little bit of your writing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Stan was great, and his 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 symphonic approach to jazz, I think, was the term he used, and the way. What I love about Kenton was, he didn't see things existing in boxes. He didn't see, this is that, so that is all it can be. He he did some very different things with big bands than were done during his time. The the mellophonium section, for example, the the string sections he used the way, and the way he did it was so interesting that he saw a direct link between the western classical music of the time and the, the jazz music of the time and a, a possibility that there is my ethos as well certainly is that there is only music you like and music you don't like and when people say when people say I like you know I like rock music or I like jazz music and it's well okay but you know I, I can sit in a genre and I can find something I like in a lot of places and I can find you know, there's a lot of jazz that leaves me cold, and there's a lot of other types of music that leave me cold. And I think what you're looking for with art and what you're looking for with something like that is is a commonality, is a something to connect to, and it's easy when it's in genres. But then you get back to the big band and the album. That once you say you have a big band, people expect a certain thing, and people will listen with their eyes or with their expectations. And compositionally, all the music is on the, it, on the, on the album on Ghetto is is the same root, is the same starting point the same conceptual ideals the same harmonic sense 
but when you do something with a big band or when you play Jewish music with a big band people say oh it's like Klezmer with a big band and then we do the six piece and we've got a violin in the corner it's like oh it's like kind of like Schoenberg meets Klezmer and it's like well to me it's all the same it's just we use different people for different voices and different sounds and right and you, because it's hard to uh, define a genre for this because uh, on the face of it, it it looks like a Klezmer album uh, when you put it on it starts listening like, like a big band album but it doesn't swing <laughs> wow. and and i'm not sure there's a tune in there that i can hum along with so yeah. melodically it it's it's very complex and it it does take some some focused listening to to get an appreciation of it which after about three listens of, of the full thing it, it it's it's a wonderful masterpiece and um to have the, the the big band and the smaller group and the duo is is fantastic because most albums it's the same lineup for the entire album and and not much really changes, so you change it a lot, change up a lot with this one and it's really cool and the, the use of the voice on this particularly on your duo ones is pretty mind blowing and what the voice is doing is not like anything I've heard before there's no words it, it's uh, uh, I'm trying to think the way I could describe it I can't really de- de- describe uh, 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 vocal vocalizations I suppose is, is the best way to, to describe it and some of them are very emotionally driven almost uh, almost animal like uh, in in some regards so um, how did you even discover that the, the that use of a voice was possible so uh, yeah and quite a lot of that goes right back to the start so we're rehearsing the band in a quite literally an old disused boxing ring uh, attached to a pub that gave us a room for free uh, safe in the knowledge we'd bring 15 to 20 musicians down every week for three or four hours so it was good business for them and when me and Nicky started we because we we sort of met as musicians on the bandstand and then started working together as we got to know each other so we were still working out what we wanted to do with the band and we, one of the ways you can do that is that you set yourself some rules or you set yourself some some criteria and our, our kind of our golden rules were only material that we write so no covers no arrangements no trying to do stuff to be popular no reimaginings just driven by our writing no swing eights it, and that came mu- mostly from a place of trying to not be a big band with a big band and no lyrics because again we were driven by the desire to do something that was not the commercial stuff we do so we're looking for ways to to make life difficult for ourselves in a way to not have a hit to not to not be easy to listen to a lot of the time so and and Nick is a great vocalist so there was never a we never thought let's not use voice but it was okay so let's write for voice let's treat the voice like another As instrument. An instrument absolutely Correct. that so the score we will score out lines for the voice and we will use the voice exactly like any other instrument as we have done on everything we've recorded that we kind of have me on trumpet and her on voice at the front sometimes um but we tend to get much more excited about writing for all the other wonderful people that we have and we do we do some stuff as a duo, and we do some stuff. We've done some stuff in trio, and and the other small band on there as well. But 
yeah, the voice being an instrument was very much something that we felt gave us a, an identity and that also set us apart because songs are easy to listen to because you, you've got lyrics, you can hook onto something and we kind of didn't want it to be easy to listen to. We wanted to make people work. And once you start listening to the, the voice, the lyrics, you tend to stop listening a lot of the time to what else is going on around it. And when I, when I hear a lot of horn players play with singers, they tend to only work in the space. They tend to only put lines in around what the singer's doing and not step on each other's toes. And, and if you listen to uh, Clifford Brown with Sarah Vaughan, he just plays all the time over her and under her and in between what she's doing. And instead of... I mean, she's still singing lyrics and she's still... It's still a song, but instead of it being a voice and a trumpet and two separate things, it, suddenly you get two lines of music and you get a contrapuntal sense to what's going on and that, <coughs> that again, was something that drove us. And then the more we got into writing together, the more we got into, I suppose, initially driven by some stuff I was bringing down, but we started exploring uh, Jewish scales and Jewish harmonies. And so we started writing stuff in the Havarab scales and Mishrabek scales. And that felt like we had started to develop an identity of our own as well, that we were... Well, now the term I'd use for it is radical Jewish culture, and we can talk about that a little <laughs> bit later in it as well. But radical Jewish culture, so it's Jewish music, um, and Jewish music is really hard to define because um, there are lots of Jewish musicians, and a lot of those, or there are lots of musicians who are Jewish, and not all of those would, uh, would necessarily play Jewish music. Um, so we kind of started doing that and when we were writing Ghetto as well the, the two kind of fused together that a Jewish subject became really natural in terms of something to do um, and it's something I've always I've been into big bands since I was a kid and I've always I've always felt this odd disconnect between you know there is Jewish music and what is thought of as klezmer is, is almost a heritage thing to me now in the same way that uh, New Orleans traditional jazz is a heritage thing um, and it's it's great, and I love it, but it feels... doesn't have to be only that. Yeah, and it feels almost like not something of my generation, that you're playing music with its roots in 19th century Eastern Europe with the Ashkenazi tradition, and it hasn't changed that much in the same way that... And it's, you know, it's, it's totally valid. It's like when you play a piece of Stravinsky. It hasn't changed that much in 100 years, and it's still wonderful. But it's not mine. It's the people who were there in 1913 in the, in the theatre. Well, not those people, because they... And, and, they and people will write new compositions in that traditional style, which is also wonderful, but it, it's, 
again, it, it's coloring the music a little bit. And what you're doing is completely original. <laughs> and, and well, no, but it but it, it's a fabulous um, way of looking at <clears throat> Jewish culture and Jewish his- history through um, something other than a colored lens that that speaks to your background, your family's history, and your view of of what's possible with Jewish music. Sure, and the, if we equate it to food, I mean, the story of the diaspora and the story of the... Because my family is Ashkenazi, that's the, the tradition and the sort of cultural reference one I, I will make the most, that the Jewish diaspora is almost as much about assimilation and a loss of some identity as it is about anything else, that there are, when you think of Jewish food, there are very few Jewish foods that are purely within the Jewish tradition that don't exist anywhere else. They will take the flavours and the spice and and whatever else, and even the, you know, Ashkenazi food is a lot of potatoes and turnips a lot of the time because that was what was grown in the ground in Eastern Europe. Um, when you Once you put Jews somewhere else, they, they make another food, as all people do. And so with the music as well, it's... I, I don't see it as that disconnected because I, I feel a strong sense of, and certainly with ghetto, with the with the uh, thematic content, but with the scales we use and the harmony we use, and we take a lot of rhythmic uh, impetus from uh, Freilux and horrors, and you know we, we'll take those things and we'll mess them up and we'll put them somewhere else. So it's not obviously that, but we we have that solid base. But at the same time, I love Gil Evans and Duke Ellington. So that that gets in the pot as well, and I hugely love Carl Stalling and his writing for the the old uh, Looney Tunes cartoons, and you know, so that goes in there as well. So I kind of like whenever people say to me, "What kind of stuff do you do?" I'm kind of radical Jewish culture is pretty much what I say now, or downtown music because what always that I do avant garde, you know, cartoon post-bop jazz and klezmer music with a big band. It, you know, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Uh, avant-garde is a rather old term now anyway. Yeah, I mean, avant-garde just means new, so it, anything of his day is avant-garde, but, you know, when people conceptualise avant-garde, they think of squeaks and howls and, you know, that... Atonic stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and I love a lot of that stuff. <laughs> and, you know, but that was new 50 years ago, 60 years ago, you know. And in jazz, you know, with Ornette, and then, you know, 30 years before that, even with uh, Schoenberg. In, yeah, and Schoenberg again was a huge influence on um, Ghetto because his story is fantastic and probably shouldn't go down that side road right now. <laughs> but, you know, certainly when we had a violin, I wanted to write, I wanted the sound of a violin that gave that Kletzmer right. kind of grounding in people's ears. But we approached writing for the violin and we approached a lot of the lines we used with much more of a harmonic sense of Schoenberg than of anything Kletzman. We put the Kletzman stuff somewhere else or we gave it to me or Nicky. And and that, again, it's that kind of thing that it's Klezmer, so it's got because it's got a violin. But the violin's playing a sort of Western classical 1930s avant-garde kind of thing. So that's not Klezmer, but it is because it's, it's there and it's, it's that melange, it's that pot, and it's all of those things that go into it that... One, again, once you put stuff in boxes, you kind of limit what it can be. And once you say, well, it's just what we do, it can be anything. And, yeah, that's ghetto, really. <laughs>
so the 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 song order you talk about kind of a, a sweet thing it, it, is it really um kind of a, a progression of of ideas uh the, the way it's laid out on the album yeah it it felt like quite early on when we were when me and nikki were talking about how we wanted to approach it we felt a, a linear narrative in the tracks so as if we were writing for a piece of animation or a ballet or a film or something it was a really sensible thing to do considering how far out we could go elsewhere and if you've got a through sense you can go out in other ways if we're just writing a sort of ten little vignettes of unconnected life it felt like we had to then put some order and something to hang on to in the music whereas if we felt we had a story we were telling that enabled us musically to do whatever we want and and again we think like that we te- you know when me and Nikki sit down to write we never we never because we, we're odd because a lot of people don't write together or write remotely or all sorts of other things whereas we tend to sit in a room and and just write together and you know we usually get our best stuff out of that um, which isn't a usual way of writing certainly for this kind of ensemble um, but when we're talking about a new project it's never we very rarely talk about sound concepts first we'll, we'll want to find a story first so Mr Punch was one that we found that we wanted to do um, and still want to do if anyone out there wants to, you know, lose some money on a big band recording. or And then the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was just... <laughs> sounds terrible, but it was just perfect for us. It was the story we wanted to tell. And I, and for me, it was, you know, really personal as well. Because, I mean, aside from the writing, the recording and the mixing took most of last summer. Um, and that was just heavy, long days... You know, writing and creating, well, recording and creating music that is essentially about the mechanized murder of my family, which is a fairly somber thought to get home with every day. So it sounds a little dark. <laughs> yeah, it is dark, but again, the Warsaw Ghetto is dark, and all these things are dark, and so you're talking in relative terms. No, but, but the spirit of the people is exactly that. Is so because you're because you're encapsulating <clears throat> that, because you're trying to tell that story, it's not <clears throat> relentlessly dark. It's not. I don't think that it's necessarily sombre at times. It, it should be traumatic, and it should be difficult to listen to, because these are difficult things to conceive of. But there's, there was enough of an arc in the story. There was enough of an up and down. that It wasn't just a descent. It was, there was a moment of hope. And when you look at the ghetto as well, when you look at what happened in the ghetto, and when you look at the conditions that they had to live in, and they were setting up schools and hospitals and theatre companies and musical nights and and these are people who are on sub-starvation rations who are worked to death who have nothing in their life but what they what they valued was not just survival what they, you know there was a there was a culture in the ghetto there was art and i think once you stop creating art you start losing humanity and and then once you go from those things you're suddenly dealing with people that you can connect to because in any situation, my default sense would be to think of music, to think of what I, you know, how I could do to whenever I, you know, whatever excessive mood I'm in, there is a piece of music connected to it. So there's always that connection. There's always that humanity. And suddenly you stop thinking of the people in the ghetto as as people in the ghetto. You, and you start thinking of them as people. And then you start thinking of those people <coughs> under extraordinary <coughs> conditions. And, 
and then you get to tell stories, and that's because you don't think of people in the ghetto as what what they were like, what they were doing prior to the ghetto existing, which, which you kind of touch on here. Yeah, of course, and and you look at. And what, what was happening two months before the ghetto started? Yeah, exactly, and again, in in Warsaw as well, with Vlad, uh, I'm going to get his name. I can't pronounce his name ever, but Vladislaw Spielman, the piano player, um, who is the subject of the Polanski film, and who's wrote a great book um, about his life. And that, that is just it could happen anywhere, and it was happening throughout. Jewish history to a certain extent. The ghettoization of the Jewish people and the persecution was not new. So life before was very purposefully bittersweet. It wasn't a bed of roses and then the Nazis turned up. It was and it certainly in Warsaw, I mean it was it was better than it in other places. But very very recently prior to that there was the Shtetl and there was the settlement of the Pale and there was the there was the Cossacks and the Russians and and that wasn't so great either. Um, so life before the start of it is not is not a happy piece either. You know? <laughs> but it, it, it's kind of finding those moments of light and finding those moments of humanity within all the things. And like I say, it's hard to talk about it without getting quite deep into it. But well, yeah, it's, it's a deep subject to start with, and you can't really skip around it, uh, you know, and do it justice at all. So, so. <laughs> it, yeah. It's a wonderful work, but the, mo- most of the track tiles, life before uh, child smugglers, life inside, um, are, are somewhat self-explanatory. But the uh, pace like nineteen forty-three, that's more of a specific thing. So, what what what's the idea with that that particular song? Okay, so that's one of the duo pieces. It's just an improvisation, and it's. Uh, it's a, again, it's more of a small conversation, but the uprising happened uh, round about the time of Pesach. But also the idea that part of the identity and part of the Jewish identity was the holidays and carrying on these things within the ghetto. Um, so there is the sense that even after you've gone through everything else in the album, there is still Pesach. You still pause for Pesach, yeah, no matter what. Exactly that. And there is still a sense of identity and a sense of who you are and a sense of humanity. Um, and, you know it's a little more that piece is setting up the uprising that is what's what's going on at PASIC so at PASIC you know there are the PASIC services in the ghetto that there are but there is also the preparation and there is also having these things under a cloud and when you start talking about the biblical sense of Jewishness and most of the festivals and looking for looking for escape from Egypt and looking for your homeland and and being slaves and being and, and wandering, yeah. and then you're suddenly in, in the Warsaw Ghetto. There, there, it feels like there was a great connection there as well. That you know, three thousand years, five thousand years goes past, some things don't change, and and, th- and those things that are constant start to create identity. Exactly. That's. <laughs> That's a wonderful way of looking at it. Um, so, if people want to find out more about the Spike Orchestra, uh, about your other works that you're doing, uh, sure, where well, they can find it, <clears throat> if they want to uh, pick up the album, then how can they find okay. more about it? So, we are for sale on Bandcamp, um, but 
really it helps us if you go to spikeorchestra.com there's a direct link there through to um, iTunes or Bandcamp for digital copies and you can get CDs from Bandcamp um, but first I also need to say that we wouldn't have been able to do any of it without the players we had who came and really bought into it and right from the start we've been we found this amazing group of players almost on a weekly basis at times who buy into the concept of what we're doing um, and the guys on Ghetto were just, just fantastic um, and I won't pick out individuals because the names are all in the CD and they're all fantastic and to pick one person out or four people out would be unfair um, but they're all brilliant and I love them all dearly uh, I just want to know who, who's the the trumpet player that's doing all the high jabs <laughs> on all your stuff that nails every note ah yeah so <laughs> I'll lead you as, a trumpet, as a trumpet player I, I gotta geek out just yeah. a little bit so on this album we've got Karen Straw on lead um, it was also on the next album and we've got some other well if you like lead trumpet players we've got three fantastic lead trumpet players on the new album um, which is a good segue to talking about the new album so I mean we made Ghetto with no real clue what we were doing in any kind of commercial sense we um, we are we are me and Nikki are both very good at being kind of artistic kind of auteurs floating around creating music and we're not so great in the past at selling our stuff so we made the record and and then that was pretty much it our next thought process is right what should we record next what should we write next you know and then and so we we stepped back a bit and we started even trying to get reviews is is tough when you don't have a label and you don't have distribution and we've got um we've got cds for sale in chicago if you go to dusty groove um who are a fantastic record shop we've got some cds on sale in london in Ray's jazz in foils um and that's you know and we've had some great reviews in the press in london and we've had some great stuff in uh europe um on websites but it's still tough you know it's, we've got an album that doesn't have a label on it doesn't have a whole bunch of recognisable names hasn't got any kind of PR because we don't have any money for that so I mean our our whole kind of business operation is mainly Nicky on the phone to promoters trying to get gigs and me sitting on the internet trying to send CDs out to people like yourself who you know I just think might like it and then from that well we've got one more person that likes us that might be interested in the next thing um, so yeah I mean it's the ghetto's a year old now and it still feels in a lot of ways like a new release to us because it's there but we are working on something else part of what came out of doing this was um, our new record which we wouldn't necessarily have planned to do so quickly but uh, we've been working this summer with John Zorn um, who and when so obviously he likes your material well <laughs> obviously yes <laughs> Yeah, when when you write Jewish music and when you write <clears throat> new Jewish music, uh, John sort of stands over the whole thing as quite an imposing figure at first. Um, I mean, the man has written, uh, I think, over six hundred pieces in the Masada songbook series, um, and I his was the first Jewish music I heard that felt like mine. And when I heard, I kind of I can I remember exactly when it was, but I kind of heard the original Masada Quartet with Dave Douglas, Joey Barron and Greg Cohen and John at around the same time as I discovered Naked City and sort of both those things just 
blew my mind. I mean, firstly, there was... I mean, Naked City was just amazing. It was like a rock band, but but everything that was wrong with a rock band was suddenly right. You could do all these wonderful things, and it could change, and it was short pieces and smash cuts, and it was just, just amazing. And at the same time, I discovered Masada, and that was Jewish music with... Now I'm going to be careful about what I say now, but with jazz <laughs> sensibilities, in yeah, that it, yeah, was, it yeah. was improvised and it was fluid it's and little, it's chordal stuff. Yeah, and and also played with a lineup that when I was younger, my ears was happier about hearing because I was listening to a lot of jazz. So suddenly, those, it's sonically more comforting to, to get into, and and suddenly I, I remember. I don't remember when it was or where I was, but I remember very distinctly when I first heard the Masada Quartet. It was just suddenly like this felt like something that was belonged to my generation, not my grandfather's. Whereas, my, you know, and John's obviously <coughs> not of my generation, but I've never met anyone who, I've never encountered anyone who views music as a present thing as much. You know, everything that's going on is now. So, working with John became kind of like a, a fantasy of the Spike Orchestra for a while, and. You know, we, we kind of sort of nudged each other and thought, wouldn't it be great if, you know, after we did this and all those things. And and John's been in touch and our new record is um, going to be one of Masada Book 2, so which we're hugely honoured to even be considered to be invited or all those things. You can go through the whole... And as we were going through the process and we started talking, I kept thinking to myself, even if nothing else happens, it's to be even have been here or to be in part of this conversation is a huge honour um, and we've we just yesterday as we're talking now wrapped on the recording of that and yeah that's been a tough four months because it's all happened very quickly and because of the way that uh, Nicky's timetable and my timetable and, and Ben's timetable works we kind of have to fit this stuff into the summer a lot at the moment so it was kind of get it done quickly and it's been very intense but <laughs> beautiful and the and the tunes from the Masada song are just some of the most beautiful things I've ever heard I mean just the the, the lead sheets just by themselves that you get is just oh, I could I could go on all day but it would feel <laughs> like I was pitching for another album and I'm not well we'll, we'll pitch for that one uh, <laughs> yeah. next time we visit uh, so I'll be looking forward to that as well because uh, on, on this one the the uh, and you talk about with your writing that the term soundscape comes mm-hmm. to mind. So I because it it it's kind of a consistent feel throughout all the pieces, whether it's the the big groups or or the duo even. Um, and I, I wonder if if that's a, obviously somewhat intentional on your part. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there that because we think narratively, and therefore that leads you to thinking visually. As, as well as orally that you you kind of looking to create something that could have pictures put to it or that would evoke pictures or that happens in that manner and also what we do a lot of the time as a way of not being a big band is that a lot of big band charts which are great kind of have everyone playing together as a head and that's wonderful and that's beautifully orchestrated and then you get to the solo section and you have a soloist and the rhythm section and it's like a small group jazz kind of thing. And then you've got some backings come in and the ensemble comes back in. But So what we try and do a lot of the time is, is not to have comping sections. It's to write lines, to write 
kind of evocative settings in which to put soloists. So they're playing along with us, um, or they're playing with us, or we're creating together, however you want to look at it. But it's not purely a, a response to stimuli that happens in a jazz setting. It sound it feels much more like uh, we're control freaks. We like to, you know, we, we write these things. So the solos then become part of the piece, that we don't have a head, which is this thing, and then the soloist plays whatever their favourite licks are, and then we go back to the head. <laughs> you know, we, and we don't have those kind of players anyway, but that was always one of my frustrations, that when you're a jazz soloist, you, you can't... It, sometimes you hear people who don't play the June, who play <coughs> who play a great solo, but it doesn't feel connected to what the song's about. You know, if you're playing a solo on a song and you don't know the words, then you're not gonna you're not gonna play the meaning of the songwriter's intention. Run that now. That's great if you're reinterpreting that. That's fine. <laughs> but I think we always wanted to write stuff that was more cohesive. We always wanted to have that sense that the solos were in a way an integral part of what we do that we write very tightly orchestrated things and then we write things that we very tightly improvise so we put people in settings for improvisation um, and sometimes we have the whole band improvising all at the same time and that feeds into it but it's still part of the piece it's still compositionally connected to me and Nikki sitting in her shed or in, in my flat Writing, it's not an abstract thing. And I think it just—it's part of that bringing it into the fold and making the soloists part of the composition. So, it, do you, do you perform this live, or or do you perform under the Spike Orchestra name uh, live? Do you give performances? So, at the moment, um, surprisingly, the record we're working on now gives us more traction for live performances than get it I mean we do want to play live we have every intention of trying to do a get a launch kick um, the the problem we have as always is we have 20 people and that's a lot of people to and the level they play at and the level of players we have means that every gig we've done so far almost everyone has lost money to play with us so I'm, again I can do nothing but extend my gratitude for, to them for being a part of the journey but 20 people you're not know. going on tour anytime soon well, well, that, I mean we're, it's difficult we're more yeah. of a festival act because yeah. you know we've done when we've done gigs in London we you know we're on a door split with ticket sales and even if everyone in the band brings a, their brings family someone, well if everyone in the band brings someone along right. then and they pay to get in. They'll get half of their money back at the end of the night. So it's tough. It's tough to play live. We've, we've played in some wonderful places. Um, but we, we kind of felt that just going and playing live could end up becoming a negative experience for the people in the band who were giving up their time and effort and not getting rewarded. And then we also felt that it, we were struggling to get a band together live for financial reasons whereas as ridiculously as it sounds ghetto cost us less than putting on a gig properly would have done so it made sense to make records because and because they were permanent because you can in the most sort of cold-blooded 
business then. You don't you have to worry, worry about doing it in two or three hours. Yeah, you can sell a record. Once you've made a record, you can sell it forever. Forever. You know, and there's something wonderful about the immediacy of performance that you don't get with that, and that I want to gig and I want to play this music live because it's great music. But we need the right opportunities to come up in order to perform it. And we keep talking about, ah, let's do something with a six-piece then. And, you know, that's, that's, that's much easier. And me and Nicky will sit down and start writing, and we're just, ah, it's a big band piece, isn't it? Yeah, okay, I'll do something <laughs> for the big band. And that's how it happens, because the compositional pos- possibilities of having, you know, 16 people or 20 people are exciting. And that's kind of, in a way, I think that's our curse, is that's our medium, is a large mm. ensemble. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, live is tough. Live is tough, yeah. but there are there are things coming up. There are things we're talking about that are very exciting and would give us the opportunity to play a lot of our stuff. Um, but it's hard. yeah. So uh, the name Spike Orchestra. What what's what's the origin uh, of that? Or right. is just uh, um, uh, is that the, your dog's name? Or is that is, is, what's that? <laughs> what, it is, it is almost as meaningless as that. <laughs> it is that we, we kind of we wanted something that was an umbrella term for what we did. Uh, we didn't want to use our names for whatever reason. Um, so it was kind of you know, and we didn't want to we didn't want to be like the so and so big band or the so and so jazz something because they felt constrictive. Whereas an orchestra feels like much more of a uh, an umbrella term. And Spike really, it's uncomfortable. It pokes you. It it doesn't. It's not a comfortable thing. I mean, there is that kind of almost onomatopoeic sort of feeling to it that it's just you know we we're, we're not if you've if you're only going to go and see one gig or one live experience and you want something that's nice and cosy and that is really easy to get into and out of and you know we're probably not for you <laughs> in the nicest possible way you know I, i'm i'm you know we're there to you know it's it's not an entertainment in a shiny suits jazz hands kind of thing it's a it's an attempt to do art and I think we're both of the opinion we'd rather be terrible artists than great entertainers. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, we're neither of those things. <laughs> well, no, it it, <clears throat> it it does, you know, evoke art or poetry or, uh, you know, like, like you say, Stravinsky, Schoenberg, and a little bit of Kenton uh, mm. thrown in there with, with the Jewish... Uh, identity tying that all together so um, I urge everyone to check this album out because you will not hear anything else like this anywhere else and and uh, uh, take some time put on the headphones put it in the car uh, but give it give it a, a few lessons and and really get into it. I, I I've gotten into it and I tell you I'm hooked. I gotta tell you. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you very much. And yeah, um, <coughs> series for sale. If you're in Chicago, go to Dusty Groove. You can pick it up there. Um, yeah, uh, wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, and yeah, SpikeOrchestra.com, Ghetto, and coming up soon. 
John Zorn's Book of Angels, Book Two, played by the Spike Orchestra. Great, Sam Eastman, Spike Orchestra. Thanks so much for slipping down here to Kensington and meet with me this afternoon as giving up the time of your weekend. Thank you so much.
This is Ruth Weber, director of the San Diego Jewish Men's Choir, and you're listening to KlesmerPodcast.com. All right, I'm back. That was my interview with Sam Eastman of the Spike Orchestra. And we heard the track Uprising from the album Ghetto. I'd like to thank Sam for coming out to appear with me on the podcast and for providing the track for us to listen to. Once again, the website is klezmerpodcast.com, and if you have a question, comment, suggestion, or if you have a band that would like to appear on the podcast or have your music played, or if you have a recent or soon-to-be-released album you'd like me to review, please write to me at keith at klezmerpodcast.com. And please remember that the music heard on Klezmer Podcast is for promotional purposes only and is used with permission. So that's about it for Klezmer Podcast 125. Thanks for listening. Please stay subscribed. Tell your friends. And until next time, cheers from London. London.